Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cooperatively Speaking. I am Saul Alvarado, and my co-host is David Manns. David, how are you doing today? I'm great, Saul. I'm happy to be here. Beautiful. Hey, so share with us and our audience, what are we going to be learning about today? What are we going to be discussing today? And who is our guest? I'm really excited about our conversation today with Mark Cartwright about diversity and their programs and it's really beneficial for a few people to listen to this, right? It's going to be people within universities and campuses, schools, both in procurement facilities, EHS, a lot of the different departments that have responsibility for servicing their campuses. And really, it's important for our business partners to hear this conversation also. This is a peek inside of what's important to schools and universities and tips and tricks on how to get that relationship going. And so, in this conversation, we'll hear a little bit about the history of diversity programs nationally and locally, some ideas of what works and doesn't work in campuses. And then lastly, what can we do better within some of these tips and tricks that Mark gives us in order to initiate, grow, or sustain a diversity program? Thank you, David. And what makes this exciting, David, is that Mark Cartwright is the new director of supplier diversity at ENI. And not only that, He's held various roles in the private sector, public sector, and other, where he's been director of supplier diversity, assistant director of supplier diversity, senior director of supplier diversity. So his experience is extensive in many areas of supplier diversity. So today's discussion and our conversation with Mark is going to really give us some great insight into someone that's actually been doing it and has seen a variety of examples of what's worked, what hasn't, in a variety of industries. So with that, uh, David, let's jump right in. First, I want to welcome our guest for today. Mark, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Great to have you today. How's it going? Great. I'm really excited about this opportunity. Well, as you all heard, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot to cover today around supplier diversity. And it's such a long and deep topic that we're actually going to have a two-part series for this topic. So this is part one, and eventually we'll come back and do part two with Mark. But let's not delay any further, David. Why don't we jump right in and let's get going and, and learn from our guests that we have today. Yeah, thank you, Saul. I think it's really important to level set, to create a baseline of what the conversation is today. And so, Mark, what we'd like to find out is, give us a little history. What's the evolution of these programs? Where have we been? Where are we currently? And possibly, what do you anticipate in the future? What a great question, David. You know, there's been a lot of interest recently, at least over the past 18 months, with some of the social justice issues that have taken place. But actually, uh, supplier diversity goes back a little over 50 years. Most credit President Nixon with uh, starting the Supply Diversity Initiative in 1969. He issued an executive order which created the Office of Minority Business Enterprise. In 1979, it changed to the Minority Business Development Agency, and now it currently housed under the Department of Commerce. And initially, supply diversity was typically seen as a federal government initiative and really only focused on one disadvantaged group, which was African-American business owners. But in the early 70s, the National Minority Supplier Development Council was formed, along with the National Association of Women Business Owners. And so the focus began to shift from purely a government compliance initiative into a corporate private sector, you know, what's best for business initiative. Hey, so Mark, so, so tell us a little bit more. I, I think that's a great area to discuss. And David, a lot of folks 
in today, you, you look at these trends. We talk about trends in, in our space, the education segment, and a lot of folks don't realize that supplier diversity is not a new thing. You know, folks say, oh, this is new, uh, you know, new policy, new ways of doing things. Uh, however, supplier diversity programs have been around for a long time, as, as Mark, you just shared, which is a big aha uh, for folks to, to realize, hey, this is nothing new. What's new is just the evolution of how these programs are being either set up, implemented, and measured, which is the most important thing. Hey, uh, are, are we measuring how much business is being allocated through these channels? You look at the federal government, state, local municipalities, they've probably been, obviously have been doing this for a while. You talked about the setup, MBDA set up through the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, again, all in the federal side, uh, state side, local municipality side, but what kind of trends do you see, Mark, because of this policy and over the years in the education side? What, what do those trends look like? So what you're seeing now is primarily in the education side, particularly in, the, in public institutions, is that it was still a compliance issue and it focused mainly on women and minority-owned businesses. Well, what's happened over the last few years is that those programs have expanded, right? Not only are you including minorities and women, but also veterans, small business, disabled business owners, and the LGBT community. And it's also now more visible. Before, an institution may have had a supply diversity initiative because the state said they had to, but they didn't talk about it. There was no information on their website. You didn't see any information on social media. But now it's really front and center and is being viewed as a competitive advantage as opposed to something that has to be done, which is a good thing, right? Sometimes when you have a goal and it's seen as mandatory, you just do the bare minimum to meet that goal, but you don't really put a comprehensive effort and plan in place. Yeah, I think that's very important to notice that it started off as a federal program and state and local municipalities have taken this on both in policy and sometimes in law. And We've seen some effects, right? Good and bad. Nothing has been perfect. And, and we know that anything worthwhile is going to be challenging to do, right? I think that's almost everywhere in life. Uh, we have a long history to see, right? It, there's always great learnings when we look back at something and we see where we are today. There is benefit looking through the rearview mirror. Can you tell us some things that maybe we've learned from our, our past, both successes and challenges in diversity programs? Back when supply diversity was, was seen mostly as a compliance initiative, right? The institution or university didn't make really a comprehensive effort, right, to meet those goals. You might find one supplier, maybe, maybe he's in construction, that would give you enough spend to meet the state's goals, and, and that was it. But you didn't do anything from an awareness standpoint. Uh, there was no program from a supply, supply development standpoint, and tracking was minimal, right? Maybe you track what your percentage of diversity spend was, but you didn't track what the actual dollars were. You didn't track what suppliers were getting contracts. You didn't track where you had made improvements. Now that that old way of thinking doesn't work anymore, right? Not only the community has higher expectations as well. So that I'd say would be the biggest change is that now it takes a comprehensive effort and the communities or those businesses are recognizing that they had should have you know equal opportunity to procurement opportunities and they're much more vocal that, you know, than they used to be. And Mark, bringing it closer to the education space, and, and again, I, I know you've, you, you know, with your experience, you've played different roles and have seen this from different lenses. Where have you seen a successful program or a key change in a program in the education area that, that you say, you know, this is a good trend for us to build on top of as you go down building other programs, perhaps in other schools or in other states. Because, you know, sometimes 
the part of the challenges are just regional, right? Every state has a different requirement, which which gets into the school. But, you know, there's some regions in the country that are, because they've been further along, they started this earlier than others, they actually perhaps have had more experience with those roadblocks, with the challenges. But have you seen something that we could learn from programs that have been set up, regardless of where in the country, as it relates to the education segment? Certainly. Such programs have been in place a fairly long time. Say in Virginia, for instance, in the state of Virginia, there's a 42% spend go for small women and minority-owned businesses. New York State has a 30% go. But I can tell you what has worked well in those cases is for the institution or the state agency to be very strategic in their supply diversity plan and growth. So you know, look at those areas where you have spend concentrated. Do you know suppliers, diverse suppliers, women-owned businesses in those areas? How much of that, that spend could be moved? What would that do for your overall numbers? What sort of outreach plan do we have? How do we let them know about our opportunities? How do we find out who they are, right? Using that database. That's really what works best, right? It has to be like any other challenge that you were given, particularly as a a public procurement employee. You have to have a a plan in place. Yeah, Saul, you know, I was thinking a lot of these organizations, schools, businesses, they almost take on their own personality, right? And I think sometimes we as uh, an education institution or director of facilities, a CEO, an organization, we all sort of have a, a six-year-old inside of us, right? And we always ask that age-old question, why, right? No matter what, what it is, right? Why? And I, I think there's a lot of relevancy here, Mark, with the why question, and we can ask several of them. But within that, a few things. One, I'd like to ask, why did you come to E&I? What, what drew you to this program with your extensive background, all of the places that you've worked? What was it that brought you here? Well, part of it is, you know, when I transition from a banking career to supply diversity. My first job was at my alma mater. So I just have an affinity for higher education. And I was really almost overwhelmed, one, with how severe lack of inclusion in the in supply chain in higher education and, and, and didn't really understand or appreciate the challenge. And now that I've gone through that and moved on to e and I see that there's an opportunity to, to make a much greater impact. So as opposed to just making an impact at one institution, you know, I can put programming in place that will benefit a lot of people for an extended period of time. And then, and certainly the fact that ENI is the only not-for-profit member-owned purchasing cooperative, I think the mission is more pure, so to speak, as opposed to profit. And lastly, I got the feel during the interview process that ENI was committed to growing the supply diversity program for its membership. And it wasn't just lip service. It was something they cared about. It wasn't seeing this compliance, right? It wasn't something they were, they were just doing for PR. It's something that they were significantly and genuinely committed to. Mark, with that at hand, you know, with this new task, and as you know, you and I have talked, this is a big undertaking, obviously a big commitment by E&I to do this, but to set it up, it's a huge undertaking because of the benefit it's going to have with members across the country. What do you see as some of the immediate wins that we could have with with a program such as this? And then conversely, what are some of the potential early challenges or roadblocks that we could probably overcome? But, you know, what what do you see on the horizon with that? Yeah, as some of the early wins, right? The other trend you ask about trends in higher education is biodiversity is universities also want to do business locally. So not only do they want to do business with a minority woman or a veteran-owned company, they would like that supplier to be part of the local community. So we're committing to doing more regional contract, which is not something we've done typically a lot before. And also 
providing some tools to our members to help them grow the supply diversity program. We know even in corporate America, most supply diversity uh, departments have one or fewer employees. And this is the same as true in higher education. So we're not having a significant amount of uh, manpower devoted to supply diversity. It's, it's, it's incumbent upon us in that to provide tools, one, whether it's IT tools or sourcing tools, whatever it might be, but also to provide guidance and really consulted in getting that program established. And certainly probably the biggest challenge, or one of them is just the way that procurement takes place on campus. So much of it is delegated, right? How do you influence those individuals outside of central procurement from a supply diversity point of view? How can you uh, instruct suppliers on the ways that, what's their strategy for approaching an institution of higher education in terms of their sales strategy? That, that's probably the biggest challenge. But it's also the great opportunity, right? Because that is where you will come in, and I will come in with this program. Is you know a lot of it, a lot of it. Um, perhaps as we we discussed, perhaps they're already doing it. They just don't know how, right? And so painting that picture for them as to programs that are being successful in other areas uh, near them, perhaps can help them with the program they're trying to establish or the program they're trying to evolve that they currently have. So uh, all of that, I, I think, is definitely a big help. Yeah, Saul, and, and I think it really lends itself toward developing relationships locally, right? I think there is that strategy of you're a supplier and you're sort of at an arm's length versus you're a partner. And when we are developing community, and that's what we're doing here, when we are developing community, there is a partnership. Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? How can we really help each other? The end user, the university needs particular goods or services, and obviously business need to sell those goods or services. And and having conversations about what's happening on campus and how to really come together. I think that might be one secret toward getting to know who's in your area and how to use them, Mark. What are some other maybe tricks of the trade or success that you've seen, programs that have really been successful? I know up in the North, there's a few programs where they've put very lofty goals on it, but then they really put uh, passion behind hitting those goals. What are some successes that you've seen that's helped not only a program exist, but thrive? One of the neat things about supply diversity from a professional standpoint, right, is there's not a competition, right? You, you're going to share information with your, maybe your most hated rival on the football field, but you're going to share information regarding supply diversity. So certainly where a particular university is located, you want to touch base with the other universities in the area, with other anchor institutions, such as the healthcare system, and just anyone that has really is known for having a strong supply diversity program, because you really want to share information. A big piece of supply diversity is awareness, right? Your awareness of what suppliers are out there that can provide the services and commodities that you need. And the second half of that part of that is how are the suppliers aware of your opportunities, right? If you're a, a public college, you probably post those uh, that information on your website. But what if you're a smaller private institution? How can you make that supplier aware of those opportunities? So some is through, you know, directly putting that on your website, but engaging with those support groups such as the Small Business Development Center, the various supply diversity advocacy groups, just to let them know and share information with them that not only do you have opportunities, but you're also serious about making a commitment to doing more business with diverse suppliers, right? It's not going to be the same, oh, hey, there's no opportunity here or you're not you're, you're not big enough, right? That you're really going to look at your processes and, and provide some genuine opportunity. Can you share with us what some of those organizations might be nationally or even locally? Well, one I referenced, so that would be the National Minority Supplement Development Council. The Women's Business Enterprise National Council is another. Another would be the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. 
the National Association of Veteran-Owned Businesses and the National Veterans Business Development Council. Those are the uh, groups that could be local in your community. And even if you're not a member of those organizations, they would be still glad to share your procurement opportunities. But certainly the uh, options that I would say are free would be, again, the Small Business Development Center, the Procurement Technical Assistance Centers, and you know, being right on campus, I wouldn't be surprised if your university didn't have a some sort of small business incubator. So w- work with them as well. And certainly if you have a state initiative, like in California or New York or Virginia or, or Illinois, reach out to that particular state agency that oversees your small business or minority business initiative. All good resources to uh, call out, Mark, for our members as they're looking to develop a new program, establish a new program, or keep growing the existing programs they have. But, you know, as I'm listening to to you describe this, I, I'm also thinking about the the question was, you know, your role, right? You came here, you have a vision for what this should be. And I think the biggest one here is just the coordination. There's so much information and so many resources and tools. And, and a lot of times that's almost the beginning and folks don't realize how much is out there for them to benefit from and coordinating that information, pointing them to that type of information or resources or tools, I think is going to be very important as folks utilize yourself and others within ENI in this new role to establish these programs. So I, I think that's that's huge. And it's not just for members. It's members, diverse suppliers, and also our existing business partners. I mean, it, it is a trifecta of everyone working together for, for this benefit of those schools and that community and whatnot. So I think at the end, work together, I, I think everybody will win. Yeah, it, it might sound counterintuitive, but really in order to have a top-notch supply diversity program, we have to have the support of our existing large suppliers, right? They realize that that's becoming of increasing importance for their members. And I'm proud to say we have numerous suppliers who have stepped up to the plate and helped to identify business partners in certain parts of the country so they can develop a direct relationship with those universities. And certainly that that was a great point, Saul. Mark, I've I've got a two-part question for you. One, if if you were taking over a program like this at a university, what would be your low-hanging fruit? What would be some area, say it has an existing program or you're starting a new one, where would you begin? I know you mentioned starting off with these associations and going and finding out what opportunities there are to connect with local businesses. And, and then two, how do you explain the why internally? So when you have maybe a director of facilities or engineering or someone and they're like, listen, I've got a lot of work to do. You're adding another hurdle. How do you explain the benefit to them? Why it's best for the community, the university, and for the local economy? That's a great question, David. So the, the first thing that I would do is, is to establish a baseline. Yeah, what is your current spend? Because you, you may not know, if you don't have a program, you might not even know the diversity status of your existing supplier. So certainly you would want to have that data, which I would call scrubbed. And there's lots of firms out there that could do that. It typically costs around 35% per record. So just to know where you are, because you're going to be doing some business with some suppliers already that you may not know are minority or veteran-owned. So that's the first thing that I would do. But certainly you have to engage your large players on campus, particularly facilities, those in the IT arena. And the the value proposition for that is not that it's because the state says we have to. That's the worst reason of all, right? That's not going to bring people to the table. But talk about, one, the opportunity, the chance to be a good corporate citizen, that your campus has a diverse and inclusive culture that should also trickle down to the supply chain. Uh, The fact that the campus community or constituency is becoming increasingly diverse, right? Around 2045, most people say that the uh, population in, in the U.S. would be majority minority. And so if you talk about 
continuity of supply. If they, if the demographics of the U.S. are changing and we don't do all that we can to make sure that that supply chain diversifies as well, right? Everybody, everybody's going to be in a worse position than what we are today. We saw what happened during the pandemic about the lack of certain suppliers and certain commodities. So supply diversity could also be looked at as a way of risk management, right? It's diversifying your supply chain. It's making that supply chain more competitive. It's about getting maybe better pricing because you have more suppliers competing. All those things. It's about having access to innovation. We know that small businesses create many of the innovations. We know that small businesses create two-thirds of new job opportunities. So there's a significant rationale there beyond the fact that we have to do it because the state says so. That's a good overview, Mark, of the not only the local community, the, the economic impact, the economic development within those communities, the job creation, these businesses being part of the local economy and whatnot, also a key factor in this play. I mean, there's again, there's so many pieces to this puzzle. And and in a podcast like this, you know, we wanted to give give our listeners today just, you know, what is the history? What is the trend? Why did you choose to come to ENI? What is the opportunity to set up these programs? And obviously, what does success uh, look like today and, and some of those roadblocks and challenges? I'm looking forward, David, to having uh, the part two series of this uh, podcast with Mark. Mark, I want to thank you today for the insight and, and getting us going on this very important topic of supplier diversity and education. I do appreciate the time you spent with us in enlightening us and our listeners about this topic. David, any final words or, or parting questions for our guest? Yeah, the great thing about this conversation is it will continue on. We've been having conversations like this for many years and learning from the past and, and from our successes. And our next conversation, I think, is also going to be very key, the part two to this, giving real tips and specifics of things you might be doing already within this realm that you're not capturing. And then two, how to expand what you're currently doing and some practical applications. So I'm excited to continue this. I think it's beneficial for all parties. And Mark, you're a huge wealth of knowledge. We're grateful for your time, attention, and for providing your expertise in this situation. Thank you for providing the, the platform. I, I look forward to the part two of our conversation. So I just want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And of course, our guest, Mark Cartwright, for that insightful discussion on supplier diversity. For more information, visit our website at eandi.org forward slash podcast for resources from this episode and other episodes of Cooperatively Speaking. And also subscribe on your preferred streaming service so you never miss an update. Thank you very much. <music>